Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is produced in conjunction with Mass Media, a Google partner, providing businesses with traditional and digital advertising strategy and implementation. MassMedia.net. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at AirlinesConfidential.com. This week's passengers behaving badly never would have happened if he was still running the place. You'll see what I'm doing in a few minutes. He's Ben Baldanza, <laughs> the former CEO of Spirit Airlines, who now teaches about how airlines work. Actually, it definitely would have happened if you were still there. And since he knows that airfares are going to be low for a long time as airlines try to bring passengers back, he's already busily working on the next five trips he and his family are going to take. That's Seth Kaplan, NPR's here now transportation analyst. Kind of true. <laughs> Pushing back from the gate, this is Airlines Confidential, the show where we share the secrets of the airline industry and debate all the crazy things that happen in the airline world each week. I mean, hey, the tickets are free. You might as well just buy them, right? <laughs> and then you can always <laughs> just not, not fly. We'll discuss whether coronavirus is the fault of airlines. The fault of airlines. Amazing. We'll talk about the meaning behind a major slowdown in the production rate of airplanes. Then it's passengers behaving badly. And wait until you hear this one. But first, let's prepare for takeoff with this week's news. Ben, a story this week in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution caught my eye. The headline was, Urged by airline industry, Americans kept flying as virus spread. Uh, it basically alleged that airlines, especially in the U.S., were complicit in spreading coronavirus. It, it quoted the head of Airlines for America, the airline lobby that represents most bigger U.S. airlines, saying as late as March 10th, quote, numerous government and health officials agree it is safe to fly. I mean, look, there, there's no question now that air travel is how the virus got to the U.S. It's how those spring breakers in Florida later spread it around the country and so forth. On the other hand, the article said, quote, Nancy McGee, I believe is how her name would be pronounced, head of Virginia Tech's Hospitality and Tourism Management Department, said it was unreasonable to expect airlines to have sophisticated knowledge about spread of the virus, quote, this is her quote now, without any guidance or a uniform policy, unquote. So what I wonder, Ben, is when I think about this or when I think about the question of the share buybacks that we talked about in a previous episode and all these controversies, and there's similar ones for other industries, is it the job of companies to decide these things or is that just what government is for? And should this really be a debate perhaps about national leadership and, and just kind of broader political philosophies about regulation and all the rest of it. Well, Seth, that's very deep for a 30-minute podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but but let me say, I, I wouldn't want to hold airlines completely non-culpable in this. But at the same time, I also don't say, you know, look, I mean, does Burger King think it's their job to keep America healthy? in what they sell, right? <laughs> I mean, well, are, are you trying to say there's anything wrong with that food, Ben? That stuff is, that stuff is great for you. Yes, you know, but, but my point, you know, my point is <laughs> there's a lot of things that are sold that aren't good for people, right? I mean, one of the essential businesses being kept open right now are liquor stores, yeah. right? That uh, I heard a funny joke at TV that said people are going there to get their disinfectant. <laughs> exactly that, that's, my, that, that's my excuse yeah. yeah that's right so airlines are in the business of carrying people and when not understanding 
how caring people could perpetuate something like this virus, then I don't hold the airlines accountable for saying they help spread the virus. Now, let me also say this, though, Seth. I think there's a massive misunderstanding about what happens on an airplane versus what happens in other crowded spaces. And I know this part because of my career in the industry, but I've also spent time in the last couple of weeks really learning it so I didn't just say something that I thought was true but wasn't really true. <laughs> and that is that air in the airplane recirculates really actively and they use HEPA filters and others, and the air in the airplane is safer air than in other crowded spaces people go to, like restaurants or other crowded places. Now, you can get sick on an airplane, but when you hear someone cough two rows behind you, it's not because the air you're breathing is going to catch that cough at some point any more than it would in any other space. Where, where people are most likely to get affected on an airplane is touching surfaces is the tray tables, the handles, things like that, which is why wiping down things has become so important and I think will stay important even when people start traveling again. So I don't doubt that when airlines start carrying lots of people again, which they will at some point, it'll be a little bit different and there'll be more focus on wiping down seats, wiping down tray tables, maybe more passengers wearing gloves or maybe putting on gloves when they go to the bathroom or something like that. I think that'll, yeah. that'll look more normal. But to say that because A4A was saying it's safe to fly when no one publicly was saying it isn't safe to fly and if you could go to a restaurant on that day, then you should have been able to fly that day. When yeah, we closed so, the restaurants, we should have closed the airlines. And that's kind of what we've done. Right. right. And, and I think and you and I, I think I remember us saying, in, you know, like February or maybe even early March. Hey, if you're still going to a restaurant, if you're still going to a movie theater, there's nothing worse about getting on an airplane than about doing any of those things. And I think that simple truth is is always the case, right? There's nothing worse. And as you said, who knows, maybe there's something better about the air on, on, on airplanes. It's just that it turns out we probably shouldn't have been going to restaurants or movie theaters no, that's or, right. or flying on airplanes. And and, uh, and, and yeah, I, I kind of, I, I just with a lot of these debates and kind of the broader, and this isn't all just new with coronavirus, but you know, you know, there's been this talk for a number of years now about corporate social responsibility, as it's called, right? CSR. And I, I mean, look, it's I'm happy whenever I see a company do something that is not just about making a dollar today, right? I think that's nice, and it can be good business too, right? If people end up liking the company and doing more business with that company. But I think with a lot of these debates, gosh, I just kind of come back to political philosophy and regulation, and 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 I think those are ultimately the decisions, right? The, the share buybacks, to take that one, and, and some of the other things that airlines have done. I mean, look, that is a result of tax policy. You know, basically their taxes went down and they did some things with the extra money that, uh, you know, that ended up in various ways, you know, reinvesting in the product, making flying a little nicer, or maybe they're paying their people more than they would have been paying them if it, without that. And, and then they bought back shares uh, somewhere in the hierarchy of things. And the fact that all of these companies did that 
right? Which is kind of used as evidence when you see, look at the airline, and not just airline, Marriott and all these companies that are in bad shape. They all bought back, bought back all these shares. I think the fact that all of the companies were kind of doing the same thing is, is almost evidence that it's not that they were evil. It was just kind of the next natural thing to do with the money. And if anything, the criticism could be for people who feel this way that, that the taxes had just gone down so much that there was that there were better things that the country could have done with that money. I mean that 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 that's that's fine to argue. You know what should be the right uh, level of taxation, but uh, but with all of these things, it just kind of seems like yeah, uh, that there, there, there there's a lot about national policy with the coronavirus rep- response that a lot of people criticize, and I think this would kind of fall more under that. If anything, you know, if somebody knew better and and wasn't implementing something. Probably falls more under that than 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 under you know, than on the backs of the airlines. That is a great Top point that you make, Seth. And um, you know, you know, I teach economics at George Mason University and, and have a degree in economics, so I got to bring that up here. The whole, yeah. one of the main con- ideas in economics is this whole idea of incentives: is what are people incented to do? And whenever we see behaviors of individuals or companies that we think that's just not right, they shouldn't be doing that, there's almost always a reason why they're doing it, right? Because they have some incentive, whether it's the tax policy, whether it's other regulation, whether it's other laws that sort of push them to do things this way. But you're exactly right. If you don't want companies having too much cash, then raise the corporate tax rate or do something to not let them make as much money or say after dollar X, they got to give all their money back to the government or give it all to a charity or something like that. There's things you can do, but to pick on individual behavior that may make perfect sense, given the set of incentives that that individual or that company has, then you almost, it's almost like you should expect that behavior when you incent that behavior. Yeah, and, and that's kind of been my thing with a lot of this. I don't I don't disagree when I look at you know, when I listen to some of the criticisms. Like like yeah, sure, it's crazy to have to give you know twenty five billion dollars. Although it seems now and that's something else we could talk about that maybe it's not really all being given to them. But but anyway, you know, just to, to give all this money to industries that have done the things that they're criticized for doing, including the share buyers. That's fine, but but uh, but I think the criticism then is is why was everything structured in a way that they all came to the conclusion that that's what they should do with the money? Well, because we have an economy that is built on certain principles, and one of those principles is that investors buy public companies, and they expect those companies to meet certain return targets and meet certain economic targets. And one way that they can do that, since earnings per share is a big measurement that people you know, score by, if, you're, if your divisor is lower and you're taking shares out of the market by buying them back, you can do nothing else and just take shares out and your earnings per share goes up because you're dividing yeah. by a smaller number. So it's an easy thing for companies to do. And if you got extra cash and you've already invested in your people and your products and such, but you want to do something to help your investors, then it's a logical incentive to go ahead and do that. And yeah. like you said, a lot of companies got to that point. Yeah, so so it seems like if anything, if it's this big systemic problem, they're all doing the same thing. And if that's a problem, then just change the policy rather than maybe criticizing all the individual companies. Airbus, Ben, is slashing aircraft production rates by about a third. Uh, We're talking now not about unloved A380s, for example, (laughs) but about 
A320 narrow body single aisle aircraft and A330s and A350 wide bodies uh, that airlines previously couldn't get enough of. Airbus and Boeing both said in recent years essentially that they had such big backlogs of orders that they weren't concerned about short-term changes in demand because you know they were sold out for years. Well, here we are with a short-term change in demand <laughs> unlike any other the world has ever seen. Ben You told me there's an analogy here to the motorcycle manufacturer Harley Davidson. What could that possibly be? Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you why it is. Harley Davidson. Now, I'm not a. I'm not a motorcycle rider, but Harley Davidson is a company that's been known as part of its success that it limits the production of its motorcycles, and that's one of the reasons that they're expensive. And it's one of the reasons that people like to own them because they know if they buy them, they're likely to keep their value or keep a piece of their value because what they don't do is they don't flood the market with all kinds of Harley Davidson motorcycles so that anyone can have one. The fact that anyone can't have one is part of their appeal, right? And the very first time I went to Toulouse, France, which is where Airbus corporate is based and where their first and still operating assembly plant is. We got into Toulouse in the afternoon and went over to their offices and said, and it was late in the, later in the afternoon, but later means like four o'clock, right? Yeah. And we said, well, can we go over and get a tour of the factory? And they looked at us and said, well, nobody's building airplanes now. Like, like why would you think anybody would be building airplanes now at four in the afternoon? And I'm like, well, wait a minute. You're telling us we can't get planes for three or four years. And, like and there's nobody building. And, and you're you, already and at you the have bar one, at four. One shift of airplane? Come on. Why aren't you building planes 24 hours here? And I, and, and I realized right then, I mean, I kind of knew it, but I realized that that Boeing and Airbus do the exact same thing, right? They limit the production of these things so that they have these multi-year backlogs and that keeps the prices of the planes relatively high, but also protects the investors who buy the planes because it keeps the residual value, which is the term for the value of the plane after it's been flying for a while, right? It keeps the residual values high of the airplanes and it's good for everybody who invests in the plane, but it ultimately isn't, that great for consumers because it makes airplanes more expensive and it makes tickets more expensive. Yeah. Uh, and these airplanes are uh, losing value right now, probably, right? I mean, it'll take some time before we can look back and see what's what's really happened. Airlines, I wonder if the fact that they are all in this same situation actually helps them in the sense that they have more leverage with not only with Airbus and Boeing, but with financiers and lessors. In other words, you know, a, a consultant said to me recently, any airline that's still paying its bills, you know, it's not getting free leases for a certain number of months, doesn't know what it's doing. That's what this person <laughs> said, said to me. And and I'm not sure if that, you know, that might be, you know, somewhat of an exaggeration. And, and certainly I don't want to encourage anybody to not pay their bills if they're able. Uh, but but his point was that they have leverage now to renegotiate things that they wouldn't have had before. Because if you as an individual airline in recent years, when the global airline industry was doing rather well, had problems and said, I can't pay my lease on this airplane, you know, somebody was going to repossess the plane and go remarket it, put it somewhere else, right? Because there was some other airline that would have been willing to pay. But now, unlike any situation we've ever seen before, I mean, unlike, as we've discussed before, unlike 9-11, which was catastrophic for the US airline industry, but 
problematic but manageably problematic for the rest of the world. And, you know, if if somebody repossessed a plane in the U.S., some other airline would take it. I I mean, this thing has affected all airlines like nothing we've ever seen. Uh, So so are airlines then counterintuitively because things are so bad, kind of better off in that regard uh, because they can credibly say, hey, what are you going to do with that plane if you take it away from us? Well, I think it certainly has changed the leverage somewhat. There's, you know, there's that old joke: if you owe the bank a dollar, the bank owes you owns you. But if you owe the bank a billion dollars, you owe the bank. Right, A variation, right? A variation is that right? If you if you have uh, heard the variation on that, uh, if if you owe somebody a million dollars, you got a problem. If you owe somebody a billion dollars, they've got a problem. <laughs> yeah, that's, right. Yeah. that's right. That's the other way to say that. But that right, that's right. the whole concept of leverage. And you know when when an when an aircraft manufacturer books an order for one airplane or 200 airplanes. Um, They put that in their order book and that order book in their mind has a probability distribution around it, right? A probability that all these planes will get delivered. They'll get delivered at the time the contract says they're going to be delivered. They'll be delivered at that price that the customer who's buying them will actually be able to pay us, you know, the regular payments they'll need to make all that happen. And all of this will really happen. And, you know, some airlines, uh, probability distributions are probably quite tight, meaning that they're that they feel really good that if they sold fifty airplanes to Airline X, Airline X is they got a good track record. They're going to pay. They're going to deliver all fifty airplanes, and then they might have an order for fifty to Airline Y that they say we don't know if we're going to deliver any of these, but if we deliver twenty five of them, we'll be lucky, right? Right? Because yeah. we're there. And so what's happened now with coronavirus is that every airline's looking at their fleet plan. And they're saying, well, we certainly don't want to take new, any new delivery of airplanes now because we got a bunch of planes on the ground. So why would I want to take on the additional costs of a brand new airplane? So the first thing they're doing is telling Airbus and Boeing, don't deliver anything to us right now. And and they're, they're saying, well, wait a second. The contract says we're going to deliver this. Well, yeah, but we're not paying for it and we're not taking that airplane. Right. All right. And then the question is, they're saying, well, and as I think about my fleet plan, what does this mean? Like, when do I think I can fly as much as I used to? Can I do that next summer? Will it take me a couple of years? Will my business change? Maybe airplanes I was thinking of retiring. Maybe I want to keep those flying a little longer and don't take don't want to take the exposure of the higher airplanes. So every airline is thinking through their fleet plan and what does coronavirus mean for their fleet plan? And while they probably reach some different decisions and some are going to make more aggressive decisions than others. I think what is all true is everything's getting pushed out a little bit, right? Nobody's going to take new airplanes now. So maybe, you know, um, they'll attack it in the end. And what I would bet, Seth, and I don't know if this is factually correct, but being in the business for a long time gives me this sense that if you've got an order for 100 airplanes from Boeing or Airbus and you're willing to keep all 100 airplanes coming to you, at some point, they probably are more willing than they've been in a long time to structure things in a way to help you make it possible for you to take those 100 airplanes. Because what they don't want to hear is we're canceling the order or we only want 10 airplanes, not 100 airplanes. So if you were going to get 100, 100 from July of this year through 2025, the possibility that you could end up with a deal says, I'll still take 100, but I'm not going to take my first one till 2021, and they're going to come until 2028, and things like that. I think it's that's the kind of stuff you're going to see. 
And because airlines do have more leverage because they've got the order books and the manufacturers need to maintain that backlog as best they can. And to keep that going, they're going to be willing to do things and not, they don't, the last thing they want to see is a bunch of airlines fail and a bunch of airlines, you know, decommit on commitments for airplanes. So they're going to do what they can to shore up that backlog that just a few months ago looked quite strong. And if you're Boeing with the Max situation, I mean, the timing of that just couldn't have been any worse because, you know, airlines a year ago might have been becoming maybe uneasy or even just in recent months, a little less easy about taking the maxes with all the issues. But in the end, they needed airplanes and now they don't need airplanes in the same way that they did. And airlines with older fleets now probably feel better than they did. You know, if you look at, let's say, the big three U.S. airlines, Delta, United and American, American in recent years has bragged about how they have a significantly newer fleet. They had that big order back in, I think it was 2011. And, you know, in some regards, that might have been an advantage, uh, certainly in terms of operating economics, at least, right? Newer planes burn less fuel and require less maintenance and that sort of thing. But if you're American now, boy, wouldn't you rather have those old MD-80s that you just retired <laughs> last year and that you could park with really no ownership cost penalty because they were all paid off? Than, uh, than all these new planes. And on the other hand, aren't you glad you didn't have to take some of those maxes that you now haven't taken? Well, a woman from Pueblo, Colorado, was arrested at the airport in New Orleans for arriving at the airport completely nude. Yes, this is passengers behaving badly, as you might have guessed. She is 27-year-old. Uh, Marielle Vergara, in case you're wondering, she was due to fly Spirit Airlines, or maybe you didn't have to wonder and already assumed that. Sorry. Uh, now, more precisely, officers gave her a chance to put on a dress, but quoting the local newspaper here, the Times-Picayune, I just report the facts, quote, she was still violating public decency laws because she had on no underwear and the dress was too short to cover her genitals, the sheriff's office said, unquote. Uh, so they told her to leave. She didn't leave. Ben... Maybe this was all a terrible misunderstanding and all she had to do was put on a mask, maybe some disposable gloves. <laughs> that, that probably would have helped. You know what my favorite part of this story is, Seth? What? Is that she had a dress that didn't do what they said it didn't do. <laughs> <laughs> That's my absolute favorite part of this whole story. <laughs> right. She has she has that in her wardrobe, like handy, like right there, ready to put on at the, at the airport. That's and right. uh, yeah, so well, close. But uh, well, this yes, is yeah. this is clearly a passenger behaving badly. Even even by New Orleans standards. Even by New Orleans. Even coming straight from from the French Quarter, like without having slept, like straight for for an early morning flight at the airport. She didn't even have a hurricane glass in her hand. (laughs) 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 But the uh, the the thing I would say though, like if we put this out to boat, if you're like a a bystander and you could see a passenger vomit in somebody else's hair, which also happened on Spirit earlier, (laughs) or see a woman walk up naked to the ticket counter, you'd probably be more grossed out with the first one, I would think. I would have to agree. (laughs) (laughs) But you got to wonder what she was thinking of it. (sighs) How at cruise altitude here on Airlines Confidential. We're going to talk about tail numbers. Yeah, get into a little of the non-coronavirus minutia 
of the airline industry. More Airlines Confidential is next. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at airlinesconfidential.com. With Ben Baldanza, I'm Seth Kaplan. This is Airlines Confidential. Fine or wine is next. But first, let's go to the mailbag. And we have a buy one, get one free here, Ben. No, I'm not promoting a deal at the local supermarket. This is from Joe in Tampa, who has two questions. And they're both good. Uh, Question number one. Why does Delta Airlines, and he puts that in quotes, have a staffing company DGS, which stands for Delta Global Services, to vendor services to low-cost carriers like Spirit. Okay, and so this is, for people who don't know, yeah, this is a a subsidiary of Delta, and they insource work from other airlines. And it's not just this. This is one example, right? You might uh, have people who are actually employed by Delta who knows, loading the bags onto your spirit flight, for example. You might have Delta maintaining the airframe or the engine of, of another airline that you're flying on. And Delta is certainly not the only airline that does this, but they do more of that than other airlines, certainly than airlines like American and United. It's Delta's major competitors. And I think there's a major reason for that. And I'm wondering, uh, I want to ask you first, Ben, if I'm wondering if if I'm right about the major difference between those Delta and those other airlines. Well, I think there's a couple differences. One difference is Delta's largely non-union, yeah, that's right, what I and up. they can and they've done that. But I think the bigger reason is that Delta learned years ago what they were competent in and what they weren't competent in, right, and. Yeah. And they realized, they they came to the realization that we're really good at fixing older airplanes and keeping them in the air. And we're really good at managing airports. And so why don't we set up other companies? And it's not Delta Airlines that does the ground handling for Spirit. It's Delta Global Services, which is a separate company under Delta, the holding company that owns Delta and Delta Global Services yeah. and Delta Tech Service, Technical Services too. Yeah, Tech Ops. Yeah, or Tech yeah, Ops. Yeah, yeah that's right. Sure. Or, um, which does the maintenance and things. So I think Delta's done a great thing for their employees by creating lots more jobs. And they've created a great thing for their investors by creating more opportunity. And they said, look, we're good at these other parts of the business that a lot of people use. And no one at Delta is going to think, hmm, if we don't have Delta Global Services, maybe no one will load the bags at Spirit and they'll go out of business. Right? <laughs> right? I mean, there's a market for those things. Somebody to do that. Yeah. So you can- Efficiently, yeah. I mean, there's a market for that, and if they're good at at at, um, at fulfilling that market or serving that market, why not make money for Delta by 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 loading spirits bags or fixing somebody else's airplanes? Somebody's going to do it. Somebody's going to make money doing those things. Why not Delta's employees and why not Delta's investors? And Delta's good at those things. So they sell those services to other airlines. Makes a lot of sense, and it's good business for Delta, I'm sure. Yeah, and they have a reputation for paying their people reasonably well, but I think where the non-union part comes in is that there is some more flexibility to say, okay, you're going to do this you know you're gonna you're gonna work at the ticket counter and then you're gonna go down and do that over there uh, in, in a way that the more unionized airlines might not be able to do 
Number two uh, here, the second question from Joe, and this is real technical, but but it's but it's it's going to fascinate some of our some of our nerdy listeners. Uh, why is it when United and Continental merged, they didn't change the tail numbers on legacy Continental aircraft coming into the United fleet, but when Southwest and Airtran merged, they put the standard Southwest tail number on all the legacy Airtran 737-700s that came into the fleet. So, so in other words, you could still look at a tail number and tell whether it was a, an old plane from Continental, but you can't tell that about an old Airtran 737-700, at least by the uh, the tail number. Ben, why would that be? You think that's a technical question, Sam? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's nothing compared to what some, what some, some of our listeners have wondered. I think, I think it is actually a cultural answer to this question. Okay. I think when United and Continental merged, it wasn't exactly a merger of equals in that United was a bigger airline than Continental. But if you notice, United kind of adopted the Continental livery yeah. in terms of the tail. The the what they used to call the tulip on United went away, and it became the Continental Globe. Yep. And the leader of the airline were the people from Continental more than the people from United. Plenty yeah, of people no at United in the middle management, but the but the leadership mostly came from Continental. Yeah. So I think that culturally, they didn't want Continental to completely die. What they said is we're one airline now. We're going to be called United, but we're going to look more like Continental. And it's important for our employees and the people who work here to know what they brought into this partnership. Yeah. So in a way, it's kind of like um, I'm going to get myself in trouble for saying this, but it's like a woman who maybe hyphenates her last name. Right. Instead yeah. of taking her husband's name. They say, yeah. look, I was a person before this marriage. I've got things associated with me that I want to keep associated with me. And so I'm going to hyphenate my last name. And that's kind of what Continental and United did for cultural reasons. Southwest and Airtran, Southwest bought Airtran. They wanted Airtran to go away, right? they're, They're getting rid of this carrier. So they did everything they could to just purge the world of anything that was Airtran. And that included all the signage, include everything. And they made the tail numbers all look like Southwest. So, you know, don't look over here. There was never an Airtran here. This is only Southwest, right? Yeah. Totally a cultural thing. Right. And it included some Airtran loyalists would say things that they liked about Airtran, like the business class cabin and the assigned seating and, and those kinds of things. Not all of it was popular with uh, with everybody. But yeah, there was no That's question right. there. Southwest was the far larger airline and, and it was acquiring Airtran. And, and so, yeah, so at, at least a uh, a reflection of, of some of the broader issues there going on with those respective mergers. Well, great questions, though. Great questions from Joe. Thanks so much, Joe. We appreciate that. Well, do you have a question for us? You can call us at 305-379-7429 and record a question for us anytime during the week. Again, 305-379-7429. You can email us, questions at airlinesconfidential.com. Again, questions, plural, at airlines, plural, confidential.com. Airlines Confidential is all one word. Or you can jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website and you'll see a forum on there to submit your question. Well, beginning our initial descent on today's show, it's time for fine or whine. We listen to an actual customer complaint and then we talk about whether a complaint is fine or if they're just whining. Ben, you have a complaint. Yes, I do, Seth. This one is from Sandy of Hugo, Minnesota, complaining about Delta this time. Hugo writes, 
A month prior to booking a flight, we researched the best carriers for flying your pet. After reading multiple reviews, we decided to book with Delta. I love flying Delta and have yet to have a less than stellar experience. My husband called three times to verify all the things needed to be done for our dog prior to our flight. We spent $300 for a pre-flight vet check, as well as purchasing a kennel for over $100 that met the airline specifications. We were told to have him to Delta Cargo four hours before the scheduled flight. Upon arrival, the temperature was 19 degrees. We were told they wouldn't take him unless the temperature was 20 degrees. Even with the required documented pet variants, we had to leave our dog with our daughter, hoping to fly him the following day. My husband again called Delta Cargo, and whomever he spoke with said there shouldn't be a problem getting on a flight with the temperature above 20 degrees. Again, my daughter took him to Cargo two days later and was turned away because his kennel was too small, the one we specifically bought for the airline specifications. They even told her Delta doesn't fly large dogs anymore. After speaking with Delta four times prior to this, why didn't they even mention this? Save yourselves a huge amount of stress and money. Don't even consider Delta for flying your pet. Interesting. And this sounds like a sort of a forgiving, reasonable person. I mean, Sandy even says that I'm not sure whether Sandy's a man or a woman, but Sandy uh, you know, likes Delta in general. But my goodness, that's quite a lot of. I want to say here's here's a Yiddish word, surus, a lot of surus uh, that Sandy and Sandy's family have gone through. What do you say, Ben? I mean, sounds like the rule, you know, the 20 degree rule. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how that works. There's some kind of a variance. But then the kennel, I mean, the kennel was there. They looked at the kennel once and and presumably and didn't have an issue with that. Well, well, I, who's, who's right here? I actually am going to... Um... I'm going to side with Sandy on this one, Seth. I think it's tough to carry a dog and it's tough to travel with it with a pet. You know, there are some airlines that don't put pets in the belly of the plane anymore because pets have died. It's not, um, it's not heated there. It's not pressurized. Right. So there's, there's, there are issues with, with putting dogs in in bellies and they haven't. This is clearly a case of not good communication from Delta. I would think that when they called Delta, they would have asked, what's the size of the dog? And at that point said, sorry, we don't take dogs that size because you can't bring them on board the airplane. And that would have been the end of it. And I'm sure Sandy would have been disappointed, but maybe would have made other choices and called other airlines to see, can I get them there some other way? But the fact that they were told to buy a certain size container and bought it, and then they got it there on time and were told the reason the pet can't go is because it's too cold not because the kennel's too small, should have given them every confidence that the next day the pet would have been on the plane. And then that separate story, you almost think, well, now we get a big kennel and now they come up with some other reason the dog can't fly, right? So, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's great that Delta has rules, but they should teach their people the rules. And I really think that's the case. That's why I have to side with Sandy on this one and saying if Delta had understood what Sandy was trying to do with her dog, that they probably would have told her early on, we can't take that dog. And I think it's okay that they don't take dogs that size. They've made that decision. That's a policy decision. I'm not criticizing Delta for that. But to communicate it properly is their responsibility. Right. I I agree. The one time we flew with our cats, I've told the story before on here, but it's when we moved from Fort Lauderdale to to Washington, D.C. And I remember doing a fair amount of research. And in our case, we flew JetBlue. You know, there are a few nonstop options. So that was 
the first consideration. Uh, but yeah, I was careful about it. And, and I asked the same kinds of questions that Sandy seems to have asked and then done research online. In our case, it worked out very well, but I, I would have also been frustrated after all that if, if, uh, if I had had an experience like that. Well, on final approach now, that does it for Airlines Confidential this week. Please uh, fasten your seatbelts and ensure your seatbacks and trade tables are in their upright and locked positions. And remember, we'd love to hear your questions at 305-379-7429 or email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or you can jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. From the Airlines Confidential Studios, I'm Seth Kaplan. And I'm Ben Baldanza. Keep washing your hands and we'll see you soon. <laughs> Keep your clothes on. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.